0: Good morning, One Church. How you guys doing? Woo! Man, uh, how many of y'all you've not been in Tennessee for a long time? Let me see your hands. Any of y'all? Some of y'all? I want to let you know it was snowing earlier this week, and it's seventy degrees today. And I've got shorts on. And I know what some of y'all are thinking. I got sexy legs, and I know this. I know this, and I'm sorry if I'm making you stumble. All right, but uh, it was just too warm for me to put jeans on this morning And uh, so anyway, welcome to tennessee. You're gonna get pneumonia. All right, sweet Uh, Actually before we get started I want to just be able to just say a huge shout out to a couple of different people Uh for our our first time guest if this is your first time here with us We're so honored that you're here today and let's just give it up for our first time guest if we could Also, our VIPs, our people who are very important, our volunteers that make all of this happen. Can we give it up for them? And for our people watching online, in fact, somebody just texted in on our Facebook page, I love the fact that I can watch online live. We're glad that you can too, Edith. All right. Um, she says, my, uh, my husband's injury, uh, he, he actually injured his knee and can barely walk with his crutches. Watching live now. Hope to join again next Sunday. I love this church. And we love you too. So anyway, for, for people like Edith and other people who loves one church, maybe they can't get out because of crutches. Some of you, I know you love one church, just not enough to be able to get outside when it's cold and rainy. We welcome you too. So anyway, we are in the middle of a series entitled Recovery Road. And uh, this was not something that we were going to be teaching about uh, actually this time of year. We decided to punt that and let's talk about something that everybody is talking about in our nation because with Obamacare and the furlough and and the nation being financially broke, we decided, you know what, this is a great opportunity. For us as a church to be able to talk about things that we need to be talking about anyway when culture and the scriptures collide, specifically if we as Christians, we know that there are certain things that we can actually do to participate in this recovery. And we don't have to wait on people we've never met, whom we've elected into office, uh, who actually live in a city that we've not been to since we were eighth grade. We don't have to wait on people in D.C. that recovery begins here in Clarksville, Tennessee, and it starts with us. In fact, that was our big idea last week, that recovery begins with we, not they. Recovery begins with we, not they. Now, let me tell you the reason why this is so important because there's a tendency to think that if we can just wait for the people in Washington to get their acts together, then we can twiddle our thumbs while they get their acts together and then a recovery will finally happen when you vote in whatever party you like. And I just want to say, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to be a grassroots campaign where people, especially churches and Christ followers, start getting serious about their faith and their finances and their morals and all of this stuff. And it starts with us. It doesn't start with them. It starts with we. And if we could just start doing some simple things that Jesus has called us all all for all of us to do. Now, here's the cool thing about this. If you're not a Christ follower, if you don't believe in the Bible of like the church is not your thing, I'm so glad you're here today because you don't have to do anything that I'm telling you to, right? But if you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, then one of the things that we're going to be spending a lot of time, you don't have a choice and we have to start with us that if we want to see a recovery in this nation, it has to start with us, Recovery begins with we, not they. Now, our big idea today, just in case the computer goes off or you have to leave early, is this. Recovery begins with a declaration of dependence. Can we all say that out loud? Recovery begins with a declaration of dependence. If you've ever recovered from anything significant in your life, there was a point where you just threw up your hands and you just prayed a prayer like, okay, God, I can't do it anymore. I just, I cannot do it. And for some of you, that was the first time that you prayed in a long time. Whether you were trying to recover a marriage, whether you were trying to recover a relationship or a friendship, whether you were trying to recover financially, maybe you were trying to recover from an addiction. There came a point where you threw up your hands and you said, okay, I can't do this on my own. And for many of us, for many of us here today, it's that moment that began your recovery. In fact, for some of you here today, that's what you needed to hear. In fact, you could tune out the rest of the teaching today. It could be totally irrelevant, but you're struggling with something deep, deep, deep that no one else knows about. And you've tried, and you've tried, and you've tried, and maybe you just needed to hear today that it's okay to throw up your hands and say, I can't do it on my own, and declare your dependence on someone else, and Ultimately, as us as believers, we believe that we are to declare our dependence upon our Creator, our Heavenly Father. What is true individually is, is also true corporately. For that for, for us to recover as a nation that for us to really get serious about recovery as a nation, there's going to have to come a point where we have to say, which means the leaders of our country have to say, to publicly throw up their hands and say, we declare our dependence on someone smarter, someone stronger, someone greater, someone more powerful than us. We are willing to declare our dependence on God Almighty. Now, here's the problem. That as... at a national level there is so much pushback there is so much resistance to even talk about god publicly that we have a very difficult time acknowledging not just our dependence upon god but even acknowledging god and 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 where i want to spend the rest of our time this morning is why is that I mean, honestly, why is that? Why do we have just as a country in this national conversation with our national leaders that we have this pushback to even talk about God and especially to put our dependence and gratefulness and thankfulness towards God? Very interesting. Week and a half, we're going to be celebrating a holiday that all of us probably like, and it's called... Thanksgiving, exactly right. Do you know when Thanksgiving was actually put out there as a national holiday? Abraham Lincoln, in 1863, declared this, a national day of Thanksgiving, and I quote, and praise to God our Father who dwells in the heavens. You know, Lincoln didn't have a problem mixing politics and religion. In fact, George Washington didn't have a problem mixing politics and religion. In fact, somebody like Thomas Jefferson, who didn't even believe in the Bible. In fact, his quote about the Bible that's made so famous is, the Bible is a dung heap full of diamonds. He did not believe the Bible to be true. But even Thomas Jefferson, who didn't believe the Bible to be true, didn't have a problem talking about God and politics. If that's the case, why do we have Such pushback with that. Here's something interesting. How many of y'all have any type of money in your pocket? Let see your hands. All right. Uh, uh, Ushers, if we can go ahead and take the... uh, No, just uh, We won't do this, I promise you. If you have a coin or a a currency piece of paper, can you go ahead and take that out for me? Go ahead and grab it out. I promise you, we won't take it from you. You're safe. All right. Some of you, you probably got coins. You got a piece of paper. If you got a dollar, take it out. Five dollars, you got... Nobody in here has got any Benjamins. I understand that. All right, but go ahead and take it out, and, and on that dollar, you will see our national motto. What is it? In God we trust. Now, this is very interesting. In 1956, by an act of Congress, our national motto became In God we trust. Now, in spite of that, there continues to be a resistance among some of our national leaders to acknowledge their dependence upon God. And why is that? Why do we struggle? If we have it on our money, if we have it on our coins, if it, I mean, and and by the way, this is is on many of our buildings all over Washington, D.C. You can go to the Supreme Court today and you can be able to see the Ten Commandments there. I mean, it's, it's replete throughout our entire culture. Our founding fathers, I mean, connected the dots between God and our nation. Why is it at the national conversation today, at the national level today, among our national leaders today, we've almost left God, we've cut God, we've, we've pulled the God out of the fabric of our culture? Why is that? I mean, the closest we get is when somebody does a talk, does a speech, and it ends with what? All right? And God bless us all. God bless us everyone. God bless America, right? That's about as close as they will get to say, you know what, we're absolutely dependent upon God. That you know what, if God doesn't show up if God doesn't give us wisdom if God doesn't give us knowledge if God doesn't show us a way out of the hole that we've dug ourselves in that's about as close as they get to just even acknowledging God and don't even let's talk about our dependence upon God there's so much resistance and I think you know again some of us some of you in here are like okay I think there should be there you know it should mix but you need to know it's not always been that way that our national fathers, and when this country was started, they didn't have a problem connecting the dots with God and and politics and public. Now, again, I know some of you are thinking, well, here's the reason why we shouldn't do that today, because not everybody believes the way you do, Chris. Well, let's talk about that. Okay, I understand not everybody believes the way I do, and maybe you do. And some of you in here today, you don't believe the way I do, and I understand that. But did you know this? That I think the last uh, poll, 92% of Americans... Believe in God? Now, here's what's so crazy about that. What, what bothers me about this is when we don't really acknowledge God or our dependence upon God and we, and we couch it in phrases like, well, you know what, we just don't want to offend anybody. Or, you know what, it's camouflaged by compassion or concern. We don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. So, and here's the kicker. We're, we're, we would rather risk, we would rather run the risk of offending God than the 8% of Americans who say they don't believe in God. And here's what's so crazy about this right here is if you ask most Americans who don't believe in God, hey, does it bother you if you say in God we trust or God bless them? They're going to say no. You know why? Because they don't believe in God, right? I mean, I'm just, just connecting the dots here. I mean, they really, doesn't, they really don't care. But we would, we would rather run the risk of offending God whom we are dependent upon than to offend the 8% of Americans who say, you know what, I don't quite believe that way and here's the main thing about this this is a radical departure for us as americans this is a radical departure when you look at the history of america this is a radical departure when you think about and look at the conversations that were had not that many years ago it hasn't always been this way now it hasn't always been that way here but there is an extraordinary story in the old testament that I think paints a picture of what could be and should be here in this nation. In fact, this story actually has inspired some of our political leaders from long ago to acknowledge their dependence upon God. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and I want you to start turning. It's going to take you a while to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I'm going to kind of paint the story, if you will. It's 10th century B.C., Solomon is the king of Israel his name Solomon Shalom literally means peace and it's in Solomon's time This is they've experienced more peace than any other time in the nation of Israel In fact, this is the golden age of Israel Solomon was the third king. He's the son of King David And it's during this time. It's during this time that the nation of Israel has no debt the nation of Israel uh, is a world power. In fact, it is the world power. Solomon is the wisest man living at that time. And as we will see, what the Bible says, he is the wisest man who's ever lived. Royals and kings and queens are coming to him and sitting at his feet learning from him. I mean, they are the epicenter of the world power. And there's, it's, there's a lull with all these other nations, and Israel's got it going on. And it's in during this time that Solomon, he has this idea of let's build a temple for God. And it takes him seven years to build this magnificent temple. Here's a, a, a rendition of what we think it might have looked like because it's no longer standing today. It's here in this, this temple mount, this temple esplanade that's 1,000 feet by 1,500 feet. And it's made of limestone the the temple is and it just has gold all over it. So when the sun actually shone from the east and it hit it, it popped and you saw this glistening gold and the white limestone. And it's at this moment it's finally completed and Solomon gathers the entire nation of Israel together and he is going to commit this temple to God. He is going to dedicate this temple. And it's in this context that we start reading in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And think about this. I mean, there are people everywhere. There's there's literally thousands of people uh, on the outer courts of the temple. There's people hanging out windows. Everybody's there, not only to catch a glimpse of Solomon, but to catch a glimpse of the dedication of this temple that they created for God. And think about this. Out walks Solomon. And all of the pomp, and all of the circumstance, he's the most powerful man in the entire world at that time. He is the king, and he walks out, and here's what happens. Look at this. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 12 says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of who? The whole assembly. Now, he's out there where everybody can see him, and what does he do? And he spread out his hands what it says. And the person writing this then backs up and kind of gives a little bit of context. Now Solomon had made a bronze platform seven and a half feet long by seven and a half feet wide and four and a half feet high and he placed it in the center of the temple's outer courtyard. If you would go back to that picture of the temple if you would. So he's actually created this little stage if you will and he is going to get up on this stage in front of thousands people looking everybody's on him all the focus is on him he is the leader of the free world out comes solomon with this pomp and circumstance and the trumpets are trumpeting and the flutes are fluting and all of this stuff is happening they're playing you know here here comes the chief and all of he's so wise he's so wealthy he's the son of david he's a poet I mean, he's a king, he's a genius, he's a writer. And I could go on and on. And in the midst, King Solomon, the most powerful person in the world at that time. And here's what happens. He stood on the platform and then he, think about this. The most powerful person at that time The world leader, he knelt in front of the entire community of Israel. And he lifted his hands toward heaven. This is an awkward moment. Kings don't kneel. The kings don't certainly kneel in public. And they certainly don't kneel in front of their public. And at this moment, the king, instead of giving a speech, instead of doing something to focus the attention on himself, King Solomon, with no problems at this time, I mean, he didn't need anything specific from God. There wasn't a recession. There wasn't an enemy at the gates waiting to come in. Everything's good. King Solomon, at this time, he kneels. The national leader kneels and my hunch is though the bible doesn't say this i believe that once the king started kneeling that everybody took their cue from the king and they started kneeling as well because the king is kneeling to the the awkwardness of this moment why because solomon is king And at this moment, King Solomon declared to the world through his body language that he recognized that though he was a king, he was not all-powerful. That though he was a king, he was a king under authority. He was a king that acknowledged a higher power. He was a king that ruled under authority and the sovereignty of the Almighty God. And at that moment, he declared his humility and his dependence on God in front of the entire nation of Israel. Verse 13, he stood on the platform, he knelt in front of the entire community of Israel, and he lifted his hands toward heaven. I mean, picture that. Can you you imagine any president doing this today? Can you imagine any leader of of the free world, like uh, uh, England, France, Canada, any of these places actually doing what Solomon did, kneeling in front of everybody. I mean, they, they, they moved the presidential podium aside. And then somebody comes out, you know, what's wrong? Well, I'm kneeling. You're, no, no, you're, you're the man. No, no, no. I am a man. I am serving the God. And right now, I am showing my humility and my dependence upon. Imagine the awkwardness of that. We wouldn't know what to do with that. I mean, we, there would be people on both sides of the party shouting, impeach him, get rid of him. But yet Solomon, in this unique divine moment, said, you know what? I don't care what the populace thinks. I care what my God thinks. And I am dependent upon him. And in that moment, Solomon prays a prayer. And he prays something like this. We don't have time to go through all of it. He says, God, please inhabit this temple. God, please bless your people. And God, when your people are disobedient and, and you, and you want to discipline us, when you discipline us and when we cry out for your help, we ask that you would hear our prayers. Don't abandon us when we sin. Please don't abandon us when we walk away from you and the law. And God, when we walk away from the law, and we notice all of the plagues and pestilence, we notice that our enemies are right at the gate, in those moments, I pray that you would move us to repentance. And God, when we repent, hear our prayers from this sacred place and deliver your people and keep the covenant that you made with the nation of Israel. And what's so cool, he admits to his people that apart from the power and the blessing of God, we will not remain in a position of strength as a nation, And what's so crazy about this prayer, in the middle of this prayer, he prays for you. And he prays for me. In fact, this is so cool. Let's look at it. This is in Second uh, Chronicles 6.32. He actually, he's so, Solomon is so wise, he realizes this isn't just about the nation of Israel. This isn't just about King Solomon. And it's, it's not just about this little pretty box that we made for God. That God's agenda is so much bigger than just a nation. Look at what it says. In the future, foreigners who do not belong to your people, Israel. That would be me. That would be you. Anybody in here? I mean, don't answer that. I mean, probably the majority of us in here aren't Jewish. You probably aren't Jewish either, right? He's praying for you and he's praying for me. When the foreigners, when they come and pray toward this temple, listen to what Solomon prays. Then hear from heaven where you live and grant what they ask you. God, I don't want you just to hear Israel's prayer. I just don't want you to hear the prayer of any nation. I want you to hear the prayer of all nations, of anyone, whether insider or outsider, Jew or Gentile. As long as they put their trust in you, I want you to hear their prayer. And so that, here's the agenda, so that what? Who? All. How many? How many? All, just a few? No, all, all the people of the earth will come to know and fear you just as your own people do. So that the people will know you and give you honor. That's what it means to fear God. Solomon realizes, God, I know you're up to something bigger than just this kingdom of mine. I know that you're up to something bigger than just this nation and this temple. I know at the end of the day, you want every nation to know you. Solomon says, I know you want all people of all lands to know you and to honor you and to reverence you, you to bow their knee and to declare their dependence upon you. Now, here's the thing the day ends. And it was what's so amazing at the end of this prayer, God, in some mystical way, his spirit comes and inhabits that temple. And everybody's like, oh. But the day ends. And Solomon, after feasting, he goes to bed. He's tired, and he's starting to sleep. And in the middle of his sleep in his private quarters, God wakes him up. And here's how that happens. This is 2 Chronicles 7, verse 11, and it says this. So Solomon finished the temple of the Lord as well as the royal palace, he completed everything he had planned to do in the construction of the temple and the palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon that night and said, I have heard your prayer and chosen this temple as the place for making sacrifices. In other words, I'm answering your prayer, Solomon. And then he goes on and says this, at times I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls or command grasshoppers to devour your crops, or send plagues among you. In other words, God's saying this. There's gonna come a time when Israel is going to disobey, when Israel no longer honors me. And if the time comes when they no longer depend upon me, God says, you become so wealthy and so independent, and you start asking the questions like, who is the Lord? Why do we need the Lord? I mean, we're, we're too sophisticated for that. We, we've, got, we've got better ways of doing things. That's old school. This is new school. We've kind of outgrown that. That if that time should ever come, God says, I will judge the people. And when you know that I'm judging the land, here is God's promise. Look at this next verse. In fact, before you put it up, some of you who've never been to church before, you know this verse. Some of you, you've got this verse hanging on your refrigerator, and you don't even believe the Bible, right? In fact, some of you could quote this for me. And as we dig into this next verse, let's look at the context of this. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Then, if my people who are called by my name will, what's that next word? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then he gives a promise. Then I will hear from heaven and I will what? Forgive their sins, and I will restore their land. Now, here's the thing. Just keep that verse up. This is a promise to Solomon. This is a promise to Israel. This isn't a promise for America. This isn't a promise for a Republican president or Democrat. This is a specific promise to a specific king amongst the specific people, but I want to broaden that out, and I want to say even in this promise, there's a principle that you and I can take away. There's a principle here, and here's the principle is, that there is a correlation between humility before God and receiving the blessing of God. There's a relationship between obedience and blessing. And some of you, you've experienced that personally, right? Some of you are here and I've heard some of your stories that some of you, you look back on stages of your life and and, and you were just running from God, running from God, running from God and and, and your life was a hot mess and you 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 became broken. You were arrogant and you were self-centered and you were self-consumed. You thought you could do it on your own and circumstances broke you. You threw up your hands to God and you said, God, I can't do it can't do it anymore. And God heard your prayer and you ran back to God and you started reading the Bible and you started obeying. And you know what happened? Your life got better. Some of you, probably all of us, that's our story, right? In certain degrees of running from God, that is all of our story and you've seen God restore a marriage, restore uh, your children towards you, restore you financially, you understand that there's a connection towards humility and blessing and obedience and blessing. And I think what is true of individuals is true of families. And I think what's true of families is true of communities. And I think what's true of communities is true of nations. And this promise that God specifically gave Solomon and Israel that if you obey me and follow me, I'll bless you and I'll protect you. There's a principle there for all of us that when we humble ourselves and when we declare our dependence upon God, that God will respond. And here's the reason why I think it's a principle for all of us. Go back to that prayer that Solomon prayed earlier that day. This is 2 Chronicles six thirty three. Do whatever the foreigner ask of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear your name. That's the promise. That's the challenge. What doesn't make any sense, I think, for many of us is that our national leaders have this tendency to distance themselves from a God that most of them believe in privately but publicly deny him. Let's just stop right there because I believe that if we privately believe in God, it should affect us publicly. And I believe that if we say we privately believe in him and it doesn't affect us publicly, then we really don't believe in him privately. How many of y'all ever, you ever maybe got a date, right? For some of you, I know that's a stretch. But you got this date, and buddy, when you were with her or with him, you were like, mwah, mwah, right? But when you, got, when you got in public, you kind of distanced yourself from them. Like, mm-hmm. all right? Some of you know what I'm talking about because you're not married. That's the reason why. I may be describing some of your first marriages, right? I mean, you loved them privately, but when they got around mom or dad, what's up? Right? Doesn't work. It doesn't work with our relationship with our spouse or ex spouse. It doesn't work with our relationship with our Heavenly Father. That what we say privately should impact what we do and say publicly. And you know what? Okay, not everybody believes the way that we do. But you know what? That doesn't give us the out to not say anything and not to believe anything and for it to not affect how we do life. And what's, what, what's so weird about this is we have this tendency to divorce religion and politics and our, our founding fathers, through all of their junk, they got this. I mean, think about this. Our founding fathers, they could write on a piece of paper, I believe that all men are created equal while they are slave owners. That's jacked up. I'll give you an example. It's not my notes. I, I, this past week, I went to go see 12 Years a Slave. And I watched that movie and it was just horrific. You know, I, I'm in there and I'm cringing and they're just beating and I'm just going, when is this going to be over? And, 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 I'm, and I'm, it's not a movie that you go take a date to. All right? I'm just saying. There's no, it's not a popcorn eating movie. It's just like, oh my gosh. And I left that movie theater, and I was surrounded by people. And, um, and most, and, and this is going to sound bad. I'm not trying to sound. most were, were African-Americans. And I just wanted to go up and hug them and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what my forefathers did. It was wrong. It was wrong. How in the world... Could Christ followers in the south and in the north say, you know what? It's okay to, for me to worship God on Sunday. And they even in this in this movie, they're, they're they're actually having they're ripping away moms with their children, and then they all go to church service together, kind of out on the lawn. And in how can they do that? That's such a compartmentalization of of religion, and it's wrong, and it's what we do all the time. Today, private, public. I mean, for what our founding fathers wouldn't allow women to vote, and how messed up that was, they were able to see that it was okay to talk about God in public. Let me just give you one example. It's during the Civil War. During the Civil War, and here's the thing about this, before we dig into this, we know how the Civil War turned out. The South loses uh, uh, Slavery is abolished. But in the middle of the Civil War, you don't know who's going to win. Both sides, north and south, are bankrupt. Thousands, tens of thousands of men and women have been killed. And they don't know how it's going to end. But in the middle of this, a a senator from Iowa by the name of James Harlan comes up with an idea, and presents it to President Lincoln. And he, he puts out there a resolution. And it was a resolution for calling for a national day of prayer and fasting in the North. Now, what's interesting about this resolution is that a group of senators came to the president and said, would you sign and would you personally put your signature on this resolution calling for a national day of prayer and fasting? And the president, without one iota of pushback, said, absolutely. Now, I'm getting ready to read this. And before I do, I just want you to imagine such a thing happening today. Imagine a leader today doing this. It's almost unthinkable. But ask yourself this question, why not? Why not? Have we just become too sophisticated? Have we become too smart? Have we not become desperate enough? Do we don't believe enough? Here's a resolution. Abraham Lincoln signed during the middle of the bloodiest battle ever fought. Whereas the Senate of the United States devoutly recognizes the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and of nations has, by a resolution, requested the president to designate and to set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation, which is fasting. And whereas it is his duty of the nations as well as of men to own their, what's that next word? I'm sorry, what was that? Dependence upon the assured, upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions and humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. Remember, this ain't a sermon. This is from Washington, D.C. This sounds like something that's preached in a church service. Man. And by the way, the north, they believed they were right. They were on the right side. How in the, the, the south is the ones that need to repent. And, they, and they're like, you know what? All of us need to do it. All of us need to do it. I'm going to keep on reading. And to recognize the sublime truth announced in the what? holy script you can't say that come on lincoln you can't talk about the holy scriptures in the senate you can't talk about the resolution that the president of the united states and senators are going to sign recognizing the bible what are they thinking here's a better question what in the world are we thinking we ban prayer out of schools we say that people can't pray before football games Pray before football games? Like high school football games? But yet people can still pray in NASCAR? I'm just saying here, I don't ever hear anybody ever dropping out of NASCAR. I hear people dropping out all the time out of school. Maybe we should take our cues from NASCAR. I'm just saying. Right? But here, I mean, we say no, there has to be a separation, separation, separation. Do you know you never ever find the word separation of church and state anywhere in the Constitution? It's not in there. Man, but yet what has happened to us? And I'm gonna keep on reading. The Holy Scripture Scripture's proven by all history that these nations are only blessed whose God is the Lord. And by the way, that's a quote from Psalm 33. He's quoting the Bible, crazy. They understood this divine connection that they had connected the dots between humility for God and God blessing them. They understood that if they obeyed God, God would listen and God, it would, maybe somehow possibly open the door to God's blessing, God's healing, that God would possibly take care of a nation. So as I close, what has happened to us? Why do we continue to vote people in who have private faith, who have no public faith? Because really, ultimately, it begins with us. And I don't quite understand that. I mean, and I'm just saying, if this is good, good enough for Abraham Lincoln, it's good enough for me, right? 16th president of the United States, everybody thinks he is one of the best presidents who ever lived, and he didn't have a problem mixing God in with everything. Did you know 99% of all Americans on their deathbed don't have a problem at all praying to God? Did you know that 99% of all Catholics who haven't been to church in years don't have a problem calling a priest? Do you know 99% of Protestants who haven't been to church in years will call a pastor or a chaplain? Why? Because at that point, they realize, they realize, they realize that they're not in control of their life anymore, and suddenly they look up, and why can't we bring that to our, back to our national conversation? So I'm saying today, maybe we need to declare a Dependence Day. Maybe we need to not go independent, we declare our dependence upon our Heavenly Father. And I think many times it's in our independence and our smugness and our being more educated than we really think we are and, and we kind of make people, well, if we talk about God, it's going to make a feel uncomfortable. That the most blessed nation in the world is almost bankrupt. That the nation that has so much resources... That we are just absolutely flushing it away, and people are not getting paid for weeks on time because of a furlough because we don't have any money. How is that possible? Maybe recovery will come when all of us, at the end of the day, we stop saying things like, you know what, we're the United States of America, and we'll be able to fix this. We're the United States of America, and you know what, we got this. That maybe. Recovery will come when we say we're the United States of America and the reason that why we've got this far is because of our almighty God. And maybe if we turn back to him, just maybe, just maybe, he will hear our, hear our prayer and he will give us personal recovery that will erupt in a national recovery. Psalm 30 through 12, Washington quoted this, Obama has quoted this, Jefferson has quoted this, blessed is the nation, Whose God is the Lord. Last verse, James. James 4 6. Let me tell you about James. If you've not been in the Bible a lot or a while, Jesus had a brother, a stepbrother. His name was James. All right? And James, while Jesus was alive, James thought Jesus was a kook. I I really I read it. In fact, Mary and the rest of the sons actually came to be able to put Jesus in a nuthouse. Because he was saying things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, think about if your big brother declared that he was the Messiah and he was going to save the world. Right? You would be going, right. But you know what's so cool about James? (laughs) Jesus died. He was buried. And then he came back to life. And James saw him. And... I don't know what would your older brother have to do to convince you that he was a son of God. James followed Jesus and he became a follower of Jesus Christ. Look at what James 4 6 says. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I wonder, I don't know, I'm just thinking, but I wonder if God resists the proud, I wonder if God resists proud nations. I I wonder if God resists arrogant national leadership. I I wonder if God resists proud citizens. If that's the case, and I believe it is, because his agenda As Solomon eloquently rightly said, his agenda would be so that every nation around the globe, around the world, every nation in the world would come to know him. But it first starts by us declaring our dependence upon him. I would be remiss if I close this service and I did not talk to you today about this. Because some of you, you've struggled with addiction, you've struggled with so many things in your life, and you keep on having this attitude: I can do it. I can do it. I can do it myself. I can do it. I have a I have had three two-year-olds pray for me. And some of you who've had two-year-olds, you've heard it say, I can do it myself, Daddy. Right? And you're like, no, you can't. And I'm going to have to be around to clean it up when you don't. Right? But some of us, we're like two-year-olds to God. I can do it myself. And the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross is God saying, no, you can't. You can try, you can be good, you can give money, you can go to church, you can become religious, you can do all of that stuff, and you will still not get to heaven. You can't do it yourself. That's the reason why I sent my son, Jesus Christ, to die so that you can get to heaven through him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus So today, some of you, you need to declare your personal dependence day upon him. And we're going to pray. And if you want to begin that relationship with God, and hear me, I'm not saying you have to have it all figured out because you don't. I don't. You still got questions. That's cool. So do I. But today, you're realizing I have to do something. So today, I declare my dependence upon him. Let's pray. Dear God, I just pray for the men and women and students and children that are in this room right now, God. Lord, for so many of us, God, we've thought for so long that we can do it ourselves. We got this. That if I could just try harder and be better, do better, do more good works than bad, Lord, that you would accept us. But God, it's very obvious when we read in just a casual glance of the scriptures, God, that that's not the case. Your word is so clear in how it describes us that all of us have fallen away. All of us have sinned. All of us are deceitfully wicked. All of our hearts, we tend to have a tendency to go our own way and not yours, God. So Lord, I pray for those men and women here today. I pray that today would be their dependence day. That they would come to you, God, and they would pray a prayer like this. God, I am a sinner, and I cannot do this anymore on my own. I don't have what it takes. I'm not good enough. But God, you are good enough. So God, right now, I ask Your son, Jesus. Lord, I give him my heart. I give him my life. And even though I may still have questions, I'm following you. And I'm depending on you. I'm putting my faith in you. Thank you for hearing this prayer. Now, with nobody looking around, if you prayed that prayer, I'm going to ask you to do something. As you walk out of these doors... I pray that you would find either me, find another staff person, or by our our greeter's table. We have these little cards, and you can just fill that out and say, Today, I gave my life to Jesus. What I promise you is this. One of our staff, one of our leaders this week is going to contact you. We're going to pray with you. We're going to sit down with you, and we're going to show you what your next step is. Because all of us, I believe, have a next step of declaring our dependence upon our Heavenly Father. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.